Greetings. Pastor Ron is taking a staycation this week, which was much deserved, and I have the privilege of uh, sharing God's Word with you today. So glad to be able to take God's Word and seek His instruction together. Uh, I want to encourage you to bring your entire family together as we open God's Word to study it. There'll be some opportunities for you to have some interaction, uh, maybe with those even there around you, or to think through some questions that I'll be sharing as well as hopefully some fun object lessons and illustrations that we'll have uh, to sort of engage us and pique our interest. Uh, We also have provided you some resources that you can download that are available for you to be able to follow along with the sermon this morning. We've been studying Heroes of the Faith from Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll be continuing that today. The author of Hebrews is writing to an audience that's experiencing persecution and mistreatment because they're naming the name of Christ. You see, their countrymen uh, were, uh, were, were persecuting them, were mistreating them because of their belief that Jesus was the long-awaited, prophetically announced Messiah. There were individuals among the recipients of this very letter who, because of that persecution, were questioning whether or not they could stay the course. They were thinking about returning to their former way of life. And the author of Hebrews wants to make abundantly clear to the, to the recipients of this letter, that doing so is not some small decision with minor ramifications. No, this is a major decision that they are contemplating making. And in light of that, the author of Hebrews lays out five warning passages within the book of Hebrews, speaking of this decision that they're contemplating. And, and he uses this type of wording. To do so would be to trample underfoot the very blood of Christ. It's not a small thing with small ramifications to be thinking about turning from the the truth, from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, as a parent, I know this, and I'm sure you know this as well, that negative ramifications and warnings are not the only way to instruct our children's hearts. We also need that positive reinforcement, which is so vital. Therefore, we don't just use one tool in our toolbox. No, we use a plethora of tools Therefore, the author of Hebrews not only gives these negative reinforcements or warnings, but he also provides us here in chapter 11 of Hebrews a running commentary on history of those who have demonstrated the type of faith that he's calling his audience to and also calling us to. You see, the audience has been introduced to a number of models, a number of examples, and we've already looked at uh, many of these. We've looked at Abel. We've looked at Enoch, we've looked at Noah, we've looked at Abraham, and we looked at Sarah last week. And today we turn our attention to the next several examples in this long line of positive reinforcement with the desire to continue to be challenged to demonstrate a faith that is similar to theirs, even today. I want you to think about this scenario for a second. And if you have people with you that are watching this, I want you to maybe discuss a question at the end of this scenario. Imagine that I presented you with a gift. I've got this gift box right here. I don't know if you can hear it, but there's some things inside. You're probably even a little antsy, if you're like me, to even know what's inside of it. Let's say that this gift belonged to you. It was going to be given to you. It was going to be given to your family as a forever gift, something that would be memorable, something that would be valuable. You might be wondering, well, 
what, like, like I said, what's inside this gift. However, it would come with this instruction. Let's say that I told you that this was your gift to be open, but this gift would not be opened by you. In fact, this gift would not be opened by your children. It would not be opened by your children's children. It would not be opened by your grandchildren's children. But yet, the promise would be there, that this gift would be there and that it would be opened. You see where I'm going with this, hopefully. The promise that someone down the line would open that gift. I want you to think and pause right now and maybe just think or have this discussion with those that are there with you. How hard would it be to wait? How does your attitude reflect your understanding of this gift's value and your hope that it will eventually be opened? Take some time to discuss this. This scenario came to my mind this week because I had two birthday parties that were canceled because of the coronavirus. Two of my girls received presents, and they were so very excited to be able to open it. They were just bubbling with excitement as their birthday came, even though we weren't permitting a big birthday party. But, but this sense of excitement, this sense of encouragement brought me to think about this gift box. However, I asked my 12-year-old Isabella this question. Ask her what it would feel like if I were to show her this gift, even mention this gift being hers, but yet at the same time told her that she'd have to wait another day for it, or another week, or a month, or a year. And then I expanded it even further. I said, well, what if you didn't get it in your lifetime? What if it wasn't received during your children's lifetime or during your grandchildren's lifetime, and on and on. And I'm sure you can understand her response. She was not very enthusiastic about that. In fact, knowing me all too well, she said the following. She said, Dad, you would end up putting that gift in the attic and forgetting about it. And let me tell you, she's probably correct. I did ask Isabella, though, this follow-up question. What if God were to make that promise to her? What if God were to speak of a gift that he had reserved for her and her family? Would she be trusting in him to fulfill that promise? And she enthusiastically said yes, because she said, God always keeps his promises. And then she added, God would never mistakenly leave a gift up in the attic. The main point of the sermon this morning is this. Today, I want us to see 
that we're called to a faith that's forward-focused. I want you to see that we're called to a faith that is future-oriented, that has a perspective on the future that's focused upon what is to be ahead. We're going to read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20 through 22, which will be our main text for this morning. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. There are several items, several things that I want us to note in these three verses that we're looking at this morning. The first thing I want you to note is this. I want us to remind ourselves what we mean by the word faith. We call this the halt chapter of the hall of faith. We see this by faith occurring over and over and over again. But one of the things that Pastor Ryan has been reminding us is that we have to go with what the biblical definition of faith is. Faith is believing that something is true, but then also committing our lives to it. Note these two important, essential elements to faith that must be present if we're to call it biblical faith. Belief, but also commitment. Regarding this concept of faith, thinking about the original setting, the author of Hebrews wants to call the audience to emulate this type of faith. But it's also a call for us to model this type of faith to those we come in contact with. We also have to be reminded that these individuals, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all those who came before and all those who would come after, do not emulate or model this faith perfectly. No, they're just like us. They demonstrate this faith but yet not perfectly in the way in which they live. I'm so glad to know that we're not left alone in this journey, right? We have examples to follow, just like these men and women of faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews. We also have uh, the author and finisher of our faith to be able to model our lives after as well. But not only that, I also want us to see that the faith of their ancestors was not credited to their account. Look there at verse 20, 21, and 22 once again. The text does not say, by the faith of Abraham, Isaac did this. Or by the faith of Noah, Jacob did this. No, it is by each one's individual faith that they gained approval. Parents and grandparents, I want to speak to you right now. As the family pastor here at Fellowship of Wildwood, my mind is constantly thinking about the task of which all of us have been called. As parents and grandparents, we are the, the primary disciplers of the children that we have in our homes, and the church comes alongside to support and encourage that process as it's a, a, occurring and to equip parents along that journey. But parents, you have a key role in this in sharing the biblical gospel with your children but we also have to remember that this biblical saving faith is not your faith being accounted to your child for their righteousness. No, rather, 
It is their faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ that is the only way that they can have this saving relationship with Him. So not only do we want to think about the faith of, of Isaac and Jacob and, uh, and Joseph here, but we also want to see that each one of these examples occurs during the end of this one's life. Why? Why would this be such an important part for the author of Hebrews to state concerning Jacob and concerning Joseph, and if we were to look back at the Genesis narrative concerning Isaac, why is it that the focus is upon this end of life? Well, I think it's because the approach of death, and might I even say a sense of the uncertain in terms of the future, reveals one's perspective on what is, what is utmost important. I want to repeat that. A sense of the unknown in the future truly reveals what is of the utmost importance in our lives. One of the potential lessons for us in the midst of everything that is going on around the world with this pandemic is that we can remember that we're not self-sufficient. Living in this time of history where we can go to the grocery store and get all kinds of things that we need, or living in this country that is so very blessed, we're prone to lapse into a mindset that we are self-sufficient. However, going to a grocery store today and finding the shelves bare of milk or bread or toilet paper, or maybe you're paying attention to the the stock market, and you're seeing these big fluctuations, a, a thousand point increase here, a thousand point decrease here. No matter where we turn currently, we are reminded constantly that we're not in control. And that's a good thing to remember. It's a good thing to remember that we're not in control, but yet we know the one who is sovereign and in control of all things. The fourth thing I want you to see out of this passage out of these three, three examples that are given to us here, is that each one of them had a forward-focused faith. Let's look back at these accounts in the book of Genesis, and I think it'll make it abundantly clear that these were forward-focused, future-oriented faith. Genesis chapter 27, verse 29 says this concerning Isaac. Isaac blessed Jacob, saying, May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. The last part of that verse about the cursing and the blessing is really a, a repetition of what we find in Genesis chapter 12 concerning Abraham where God says to Abraham, those who curse you, I will curse, and those who bless you, I will bless, that all the families, all the nations of the earth might be blessed in you, Abraham. And here we see Isaac, having received this blessing from his father, is now blessing his son Jacob with this very same hope. And the reason I say that it's a hope is because it has not yet been fully fulfilled. Abraham died without this being fully fulfilled. Isaac, on his deathbed, will die without this being fully fulfilled. It is a forward-focused, a future-oriented faith that Isaac is proclaiming to his son Jacob here. 
We also find it in the example of Jacob in Genesis chapter 48, verse 21. Jacob blessed Joseph, saying, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Note here that Jacob also has this forward-looking faith. In fact, in the very next chapter, chapter 49 of Genesis, Jacob assembles his entire family to tell them what will occur in the end of the days. Once again, this forward, future-oriented perspective is what is driving Jacob as he assembles his family at the end of his life. And then the third example that we see and referenced here in Hebrews 11, Joseph. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 24 through 25, we read, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. I want you to see that Joseph was certain and anticipated that God would keep his promise. Twice in this text, we see the care of God mentioned in verse 24 and 25. And both times, there's a particular Hebrew construction that emphasizes Joseph's statement about the care of God. In a very wooden or literal approach of translating this passage, it would read like this, God will care, will take care to care for you. God will take care to care for you. In Hebrew, it's another way of emphasizing that. The way it could be said is, is just like it says it here in this text. God will surely take care of you. Joseph had a certainty without any doubt that God would fulfill his promise in taking care of the Israelites, in taking care of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those who called upon his name. Additionally, looking at this text in Genesis, we see that Joseph had a forward-looking, forward-focused faith in that he mandated that his bones be carried to the promised land. Thus, the bones of, of Joseph accompanied the Israelites even throughout their 40 years of wilderness wandering. I want you to think about that for a second. You're one of the Israelites who are traveling in the, in the midst of this wandering of 40 years because of your disobedience to God, and you're wondering, can my faith truly be forward-focused? All you have to think about is what is being carried along with you. The very bones of Joseph, who is a model, who is a testimony of this forward-looking faith as an object lesson. You see, they... Isaac and Jacob and Joseph demonstrated faith that was forward-focused by refusing to recognize any threat to the fulfillment of God's promise. I have a question for you. Do you and do I, do we model that type of faith? That type of forward-oriented, forward-focused faith that realizes that there's no threat to God fulfilling his promise, for he is the ultimate promise keeper. If you're like me, your heart is bursting with thankfulness to God to know that he keeps all of his promises, of which his promise that if we call upon his name, he will save us is one of them. Right? 
so much thankfulness to give to the Lord for that. And if you're like me, you're, you're also challenged by the examples that we've seen here in chapter 11 of Hebrews. But yet at the very same moment, you're wondering how you could ever model or exemplify a faith like that. I want you to pause and have a discussion with those that might be there with you and discuss the following questions. What's your typical response in times of uncertainty? If someone were to review your conversations or social media posts over the last week, how would they characterize your attitude? Take some time to discuss. Once again, if you're like me, it's exposing to hold up the mirror of God's Word to your life and to see that you're not living the forward-focused uh, forward faith that's been shown to us here in Hebrews chapter 11. You might have noted some attitudes, even over the last week in light of the, the uncertainty of everything unfolding before us. You might have identified these types of attitudes, fear, irritation, anger, envy. All of these things can be results and fruit of anxiety. You see, our, our thoughts and our, our, our actions that follow from anxious thoughts can lead to fear, can lead to eruptions of anger within us, and can lead to us being envious of those who we think might not have to worry about the same situations that we're having to worry about. Today I want us to close by looking at an application, by asking the question, does the Bible give us answers to how to handle our anxiety? You see, we're not left to our own devices to determine how we're to handle anxiety, how we're to deal with this very human emotion that I want you to know is not just something that you are struggling with. In fact, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through 9 has been a beloved passage throughout church history. I want us to look at that passage together. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, 
which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I want you to see here in verse 5, Paul writes, the Lord is near. Now we might be thinking at first glance that Paul's alluding to the presence of the Lord being with us in uncertain times. And that is so very true. We find that from vast number of other scriptures that God is with us. In fact, He has sent His Holy Spirit to dwell within us to give a testimony of His work of grace in us. But Paul, in this passage in Philippians, has something different in his mind. He has a retur- the return of the Lord, the rule and the reign of Christ over all that is rightfully His as His perspective in this passage. I want you to see here that in the midst of the discussion concerning anxiety, Paul points us to having a forward-focused, future-oriented perspective. Paul provides for us seven interconnected imperatives, commands, in this section that are worthy of additional study. But I want us to just unpack quickly these seven interconnected imperatives these seven interconnected commands on how to overcome maybe the anxiety that you're feeling right now during this time of uncertainty first in verse four paul tells us that we are to rejoice in the lord always rejoice in the lord the second is like it we are to rejoice he says again it's so interesting that paul wants to make sure that we understand that our joy is to be found in who christ is even in light of the circumstances and the uncertainty that might surround them we are to find our rejoicing in the lord but then the third of these commands is this paul says let your graciousness be known to all men what does paul mean by this your graciousness why would paul be concerned about speaking to the philippians and speaking to us about our graciousness in times of anxious uh, in times of anxiety well here's why in acknowledging all the gifts that god gives and acknowledging that he is the one who gives good gifts along with acknowledging that he's the one who is in ultimate control of our life When we share that, we are a testimony of His grace. We are a testimony to His glory, to His renown, to His his fame, that all men and all women, all those that we come in contact with, might know this great God and His graciousness towards us by the way in which we acknowledge His blessings that are given to us. The fourth of these imperatives is this. Be anxious for nothing, Paul says in verse 6. And after some deep theological study on the Greek word nothing, this is what I can tell you. 
it means nothing. There is not an out clause with this. There's no except, no a little bit here, a little bit there, no however. No, Paul is clear when he says that we are to be anxious for nothing. However, it is interesting to look at the word anxious here. The word literally means to care for, to look after, or to be concerned for. Does this mean that Paul is telling us that that we should have no concerns or no cares in this world? Or to quote two prominent theologians that if you turn over to your your children and ask them who they are, but these two prominent theologians, Timon and Pumbaa from The Lion King, Hakuna Matata. Is that what we're saying? That we're to have no worries? Or even as Timon and Pumbaa did, they escaped the world around them fleeing from the responsibilities that they had. This cannot be what Paul intended because in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul actually commends Timothy for genuinely being concerned for the believers in Philippi using this very same Greek term in the book of Philippians. You see, the difference is where our concern and where our care is placed, where it's directed Timothy's care and his concern was for others, not for himself. The inappropriate emotion that Paul's addressing here of of anxiety, of anxious thoughts that he's confronting here in this passage is an inward fretting, a worrying that's really unhealthy and a worrying, a fretting that indicates that you don't have that forward-focused faith upon the sovereign Lord who is in control of your life and in control of mine and in control of everything that is occurring even in these uncertain times around us. The fifth of these imperatives is this. Let your requests be made known to God. Verse 6. Paul commands us to pray. We are to set our focus, this forward focus, upon the Lord during times in which we may grow anxious. As I was studying and preparing for this message, I came across a German theologian who was was commenting on this very verse, and his words really resonated with me, and I wanted to share them with you. J.A. Bengel says this, Care, anxiety, and prayer are as mutually opposed as fire and water. I want you to think about that for a second. Our anxiety and prayer are as mutually opposed to one another as fire and water. And we know that fire and water, water will put out that fire. I encourage you to think about prayer in that way. As those anxious thoughts come into your mind and as you feel the the anxiety rising, or maybe you've even gone all the way into reaching some of those fruits of anxiety, fear, right, anger, envy, to seek the Lord in prayer, to use the Lord's Word, to pray God's Word over the situation, trusting Him, trusting His sovereign hand in the midst of those uncertain times. The sixth imperative is this, found in verse 8. Dwell on these things. You might say, Well, my mind so easily wanders into a direction of anxiety, and I acknowledge that because my mind is prone to do the same thing. 
So how do we discipline our mind, right? We, we discipline our body physically, right, by working out, going to the gym. But how do we discipline our mind in order not to dwell upon these anxious thoughts? Well, the, the, the author here, Paul, tells us how we're to do that. We're to do that by filling our minds with other thoughts. A friend of mine shared this illustration with me, and I want to share it with you because it really, once again, resonated with me. Note that Paul mentions here in verse 8, eight characteristics of things that we should be meditating upon, that we should be dwelling upon. Things that are true. Things that are honorable. Things that are right. Things that are pure, lovely, commendable. If there is anything excellent, and Paul in his argument is saying, and there is. And if there is anything praiseworthy, and there is, These eight characteristics are the things that we are to be meditating upon, dwelling upon, continually. It just so happens, my friend shared with me, that we also know of an octagon-shaped, eight-sided, eight-cornered shape and a sign that tells us what we are to do whenever we're not observing those eight characteristics. It's right here. Think about that for a second. If something is not true, not honorable, not right, not pure, not lovely, not commendable, not excellent, and not praiseworthy, what are we to do with that? We're to stop. We're to stop thinking in those anxious ways and approach the Lord in prayer that our minds might be changed. right? That we might begin to think of these things, these characteristics, and set those aside. The seventh of these imperatives is this. Paul tells us to practice these things in verse 9. It's not enough that we just engage our minds with these characteristics. We must also put them into practice with the rest of what Scripture has to say. I want you to remember this, this definition of faith that we've been working with and that we've seen throughout Hebrews chapter 11. That faith has these two components. It is believing, but it is also committing our lives to it. And to borrow the words from a great hymn, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So when we encounter these these times of anxiety, when we encounter these anxious thoughts, what are we to do? We're to be... Uh, rejoicing in the Lord. We're to be gracious in our spirit, letting that be known to all those around us. We're to acknowledge that anxiousness is sin. We're to acknowledge that we are to be praying to God. We're to acknowledge that we are to have our mind garrisoned about as we dwell upon the things of the Lord. And we're to put these things into practice. I want you to note that in light of these seven imperatives, these seven commands, God also gives us a wonderful promise in the midst of this. The God who is faithful to all of His promises makes this promise in the midst of these seven commands. In verse 7 and verse 9, the peace of God is promised by the God of peace to garrison our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Think of that. The peace of God is promised by the God of peace to garrison 
to build a fortress around our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Brother and sister in Christ, we have so much to praise God for, to thank Him for, to worship Him for in light of this passage. Maybe you're here and you're paying attention to this this sermon and you realize that you don't have this forward-looking faith because you don't believe. You have not committed yourself to Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you that there's no better time than right now to admit that you are a sinner, to admit that you have broken God's law, and because of that, you are under God's wrath, under God's punishment, just as all of us are because of our sin. But then to believe, to believe that Jesus is God's Son, that Jesus has paid the price for your sin by becoming the substitute on your behalf, taking God's wrath upon Himself, that you might then inherit his righteousness. What a great transaction. What a great reversal that God has brought about in what Jesus has done for us. And then that we would commit ourselves to him, to living in a way that the scriptures call us to, that Jesus has called us to. But maybe you find yourself today struggling with the present situation I want you to know that you're not alone. You're not alone in this journey. We would love to pray for you. If you would reach out to us by email or calling the church office, we want to gather together with you and instruct others to pray for you in this regard. Maybe you're here and you're listening and you have a tangible need. In light of everything that's going on, some some people are being laid off. Some people are struggling to find... uh, food. We want to come alongside of you as a church family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to help you in this time of need. Once again, you can reach out to us in the church office by calling us or emailing us. We would also love for you to interact with us with the sermon notes that have been provided for you that you could download. We encourage you to send our que- your questions to us, maybe about the sermon. Maybe, maybe this has raised some concerns or some questions in light of what God's Word has to say about anxiety or walking in forward-focused faith. Reach out to us. Maybe you have a word of testimony of how God in the past or even presently is sustaining you in faith, in forward-looking faith. We'd love to hear from you as well. No matter what it is, I want you to know that we are here to love you and support you in these uncertain times. And we want to point you to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we come before you, thankful for who you are. Thankful, Lord, that you are truly in control of all things. Lord, for you created everything with your very word. And you hold all things together by the very word of your power. We come before you acknowledging who you are, acknowledging your greatness, acknowledging, Lord, that you bend your ear to hear us, even though we are so unworthy. Father God, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to overcome the thoughts of of anxiety, Lord, that we have. Help us to submit those to you. Help us to seek you in prayer. Help us to rejoice Lord, in all things, help us to dwell 
upon those things that are true and honorable and excellent and right and pure. And Father, Lord, help us to put those things in practice that our graciousness would be a testimony to a watching world. These things we pray in your name. Amen.